Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore the strategic use of racism in electoral politics to divide citizens across racial and other differences in an effort to retain power and wealth. My guest is Ian Haney-Lopez, professor at UC Berkeley School of Law and author of several books, including Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, and Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections, and Saving America. Lopez says strategic racism is a deeply corrosive force, and he's exploring how to counter its effects by encouraging people to come together across divides so we can focus on our commonalities, develop shared understandings of what we want from democracy and our elected officials, and work together to improve society. Lopez developed the Race Class Narrative Project and the Race Class Academy in an effort to counter dog whistle politics and build cross-racial and cross-class solidarity. This is part one of my interview with Ian Haney-Lopez. You can hear part two next week. Your focus on race and racism in the U.S., and your term strategic racism. So there's a way I think we all understand racism and some people understand it differently. It's like, oh, these are individual acts of hate or uh, intentions of hate. But you're seeing it maybe in a slightly different or uh, larger context. I'd love to I'd love to have you talk about how you're defining that. Maybe the way to define strategic racism is to think about somebody like Bill Clinton. So a came of age during the civil rights movement close African-American friends, no reason at all to believe that he's a bigot or that he harbors anti-Black prejudice, that he holds to it consciously. At the same time, as he looked at the electoral landscape in the United States, he realized he would have to pander to white racial anxiety about African-Americans, that Republicans had been using similar tactics to win elections, and that if he wanted to compete effectively, he'd have to do the same thing. And when he did so, when he talked about welfare as a code for African-Americans or cracking down on crime as another way to generate a specter of black violence in the minds of white voters, that was strategic racism. It was racism in the sense that it was an intentional effort to draw on, promote, stimulate racist prejudices and fears. But it was strategic in the sense that it wasn't personal feelings of animus. It was cold calculation. It was political maneuvering. So how does strategic racism affect us at the everyday level? Here's the thing about strategic racism. Strategic racism may be the most destructive form of racism in our society over the last half century. We tend to think about the most destructive bigots as the the, the, the hate-addled individual, uh, even, if you will, a lynch mob. But our government... Our two parties have been dominated by strategic racists for half a century. And that the harm they've done, including racialized mass incarceration, um, an incredibly cruel immigration and deportation system, um, massive disinvestment from 
cities and regions understood as predominantly inhabited by people of color, the damage, the pain they've caused through their strategic racism, through their cold calculations, through their calculus of political uh, strategy, that's been much graver. It's inflicted much more serious wounds on Americans at the individual and community level than anything an individual hate-filled closet clan member could possibly have done. So you're saying that it's a, it's part of the system. I'm not sure I would use the word system. When I think of the word system, I think about institutions which are both bureaucracies but also normal ways of behaving, institutionalized behavior. Strategic racism is a story that's much more individual. These are folks who are looking around and who are saying, I want A, B, or C. And for politicians, it's, I want to be elected. But let's also have some of these right-wing multi-billionaires, the Coke Donor Network, for example, and they're saying to themselves, I want low taxes for my billions. I want to make sure my corporations get to write the rules. I want to be free from environmental regulations. People have goals. They have agendas. And then they say, how do I get there? And very often they say, well, in the United States, the surest route to electoral politics and the surest route to hijacking democracy is by stoking racial conflict. That's strategic racism. So when I say strategic racism, I really want to highlight the calculus of individuals looking around for means to achieve their objectives. Now, it's so common, it's so deeply a part of our of our political fabric now that, that it would make sense to say this is almost the norm in American politics. Certainly it's the norm with the Republican Party. But I don't want to describe it as a system. Um, I don't want to describe it as something that's essentially operating out there with without human intervention. Um, yes, maybe people are participating, but they lack a consciousness about these these patterns and these structures, or they lack an ability to change them, right? All of those connotations that come with system thinking and institution thinking. Um, years ago, someone promoted the concept of racism without racists. That was a systemic analysis. That was saying, hey, We've built racism so deeply into our society that if we do nothing, if we just go along with it, we'll be embroiled in significant racial inequality. That's racism without racists. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, frankly, some truly despicable behavior where people say to themselves, hey, I want to get elected or I want power or I want to pay less taxes. I want to hoard my billions. And the best way I can see to do that is to push people into hating and fighting each other, to push government to try and lend legitimacy to the lie that some communities are basically dangerous and pathologically violent, and government can promote that lie by building prisons the best way for me to achieve power is to scare the bejesus out of Americans about immigrants, even if that means 
tearing families apart at the border. That's truly despicable. More importantly for this conversation, it's an act of choice. They don't have to do that. They could do something else. They could not do it. Even better, they could name that that's what is happening in our society and denounce it, stand up against it. That's the point about strategy. It's cold calculation. Sure, it's widespread, but it is not systematic in the sense of being so deeply institutionalized. People aren't thinking about what they're doing. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that response. Thanks so much for that. So you mentioned uh, earlier and just a moment ago that that part of this strategy is to stoke division, is to pit people against each other, and that this has caused a lot of harm. And that fraction divide, certainly since the civil rights movement, but I, I, I would argue that's sort of been a piece of the game for, uh, you know, for hundreds of years. Why is it so effective? I mean, why does it persist? Well, let me break those those two apart, um, because I think what you're saying about this being true for hundreds of years is actually a really important insight. One of the things that is critical to realize here is that we're grappling with the very nature of racism. Like, what is racism at root? And for most of us, we have a sense that racism is interpersonal conflict, the, the sort of um, an individual who hates another because of the color of their skin. And then there's a sort of a little bit more radical understanding that says, hey, this isn't evenly distributed in society. We have this long history of white supremacy in the United States. We really ought to think about white racism or racism as a set of practices that elevates whites above other races in the United States. But even there, notice, we're still thinking about racism in terms of the relationships, maybe now the subordination and oppression of some racial groups by another racial group. Whereas the conversation we're having now is saying, well, racism's that, but racism is more fundamentally about a quest for power, about a quest for wealth, about a quest for control over government. And in this story, racism isn't just about group relations. Racism is about power and the way it exploits group conflict in its own interest. When I talk about racism that way, and a shorthand would be to say racism is the primary weapon in the class war that's being waged right now in the United States, right? That would really get at it. Racism is the primary weapon in the class war that the very wealthy are winning. When I say it that way, a couple of things. One, it really helps us see that racism is inseparable from other important social dynamics, in particular capitalism in the United States. The other is it may generate the impression that racism isn't real or that racism is less important, that, that really we should be talking about economics. And that's a huge mistake. In the United States, Class warfare and racism have always been inseparable. Whether we're talking about 
the foundation and defense of the enslavement of people from Africa or the dispossession and genocide of Native Americans or manifest destiny and the U.S. taking of the northern half of Mexico or empire and the U.S. extending its power to Puerto Rico, to Cuba, to the Philippines, to Hawaii, or whether we're talking the last 50 years. Neither class warfare nor race is primary, neither is secondary. Both are inextricably interwoven. They always have been. What happens is that with the civil rights movement over the last 50 years, we kind of forgot that. And we started really thinking about racism as just relations, sometimes just between individuals and sometimes just between racial groups. But the truth is our most radical freedom leaders, Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, W.B. Du Bois, Dolores Huerta, these people understood race and class always in the United States work together. There's no racial justice without economic fairness, and there will be no economic fairness without a racially egalitarian society. And that's such a uh, powerful concept that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that in the 60s in particular, a lot of the civil rights leaders that you mentioned, several actually reached across that race divide to people from similar classes to try to gain solidarity or, or work together, and that that was not looked at kindly by those in power and that there were there were some definite um, violent pushbacks on some of those efforts. I mean, I think it's the leaders from the 60s, but I think it's also the leadership in the South immediately after the Civil War. After 1865, when slavery is abolished and people newly freed from slavery attain the right to vote, you have a flourishing of progressive government in the South uh, that includes things like schools and shared governance. And it's an interracial movement, and it's also involved protections from workers. That movement was a double threat to the plantation economy by both removing African-Americans from the sort of oppression and vulnerability which made them exploitable as sharecroppers, but also by them joining with white workers to demand that the wealth and benefits of these agricultural but also newly industrializing states be shared widely. And the response to that was a heavy investment by the economic elites of the South into a revival of the ideology of white supremacy. So we think about the rise of the Klan and the rise of lynching and racist terrorism as white supremacy target against African-Americans, and it was, but it was also recruiting whites into sabotaging their own future. And I think that's the insight that Martin Luther King came to in the middle of the 1960s, that 
you could not achieve real emancipation for African Americans unless that freedom came also with jobs. And if it was to come with jobs, you also needed to recruit the white working class. They needed to see that their own future depended on building common cause with African-Americans. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with UC Berkeley law professor Ian Haney-Lopez about the use of strategic racism in politics. And so Martin Luther King articulated this as not a racial justice movement for African-Americans, but a poor people's movement. And now you have, with Reverend William Barber, out of North Carolina, a new poor people's movement. And it's the same insight. To build a racially egalitarian society, it also needs to be an economically just society. And to build an economically just society, it must also be racially egalitarian. So the goal then is to get people who've come to see themselves as different, at odds, in competition, as having common goals, common values and ideals, and common needs and wants. There's a a saying in the civil rights movement that our that our fates are linked. We often think of this as describing our fates within a racial group. But really the core insight is all of us in a democracy have a linked fate. And if we recognize our linked fate, if we develop practices of social solidarity, of building power and trust across divides, we can take care of our own families. But if we don't, if we turn against each other, then we all fail individually, community by community, racial group by racial group, but we all lose for ourselves and for our children the future that we envision. Yeah, and this is very similar, I mean, from a different place, but very similar to where civity has come in that we need to be able to connect across these divides for the sake of democracy, that democracy is at stake if we cannot speak to each other across these divides and differences and find some common ground. Democracy itself is a means to an end. Yes. And what we're seeing now in public polling is that an astounding number of Americans are saying, in order to secure a decent future for my children, if what that requires is that I reject democracy, that I support politicians who strip the vote from others, if I support politicians who feud with the press, if I support politicians who are authoritarian in their tendencies, I'm okay with doing that if that's how I'm going to take care of my family. When we defend democracy, we shouldn't defend democracy as if democracy is our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is a society in which our families are secure, our children can be provided for, we are at peace with one another. We're not under constant threat of violence. We have realistic routes of upward mobility. We have realistic prospects for care uh, in our old age or in the midst of calamity. 
we have as great a liberty to define the meanings of our life and the meaningful relationships of our lives as is compatible with a stable society. These are the things that we're fighting for, that we want. Democracy is the way we get there. And so now when we say cross-racial solidarity in an effort to fight for democracy and economic freedom, economic justice, really what we're saying is cross-racial solidarity is the route to the sort of society we hope for for ourselves and for our children. Yes, the definition of what democracy means to us. It needs to be said, and I'm so glad you said it, and also needs to be cultivated. It's like a garden, a relationship. It's it's something that, you know, if we want to have that kind of society, that's something that we don't just – it's not an end point and then we're done and then we can kick back and relax. So we say we want this, and yet you mentioned that there are a lot of people now who are entertaining the idea of, you know what – this seems over here, this idea of authoritarianism or this idea of maybe getting rid of some of my rights so I can, I can have this and that, that feels interesting. So why in your estimation is it that people are entertaining these ideas and why is this divide and conquer strategy working so well on us? I think to understand the power of racial fear and anxiety to tear us apart, you have to look in a couple of directions. One, you have to look at the strategic races. And so there we can tell a story about the politicians from Barry Goldwater to Richard Nixon to Ronald Reagan to George H.W. Bush and then to Bill Clinton saying, wow, if you can't beat them, join them. Let me try this too. Like all the way through Donald Trump, you got to look at the strategic races. In the camp of the strategic races, you also have to look at reactionary billionaires and the think tanks they've funded. These are folks who don't believe in an opportunity society. They believe that the rich should be the main engines of social progress, that they know better, that they should be allowed free hand to make as much money as they want. But once they've made that money, they want to use government to hem themselves with protections to make sure the government serves uh, and furthers their interests, they too realize that democracy is a threat to them, that people acting to take care of each other threatens their ability to hoard their billions and to rule over working people and to pollute the environment. And so they too turn and support strategic racism. And now we also have to add media personalities. There are a lot of people, and I'm thinking Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, Ann Coulter, Sean Hannity. There are a lot of folks who are essentially hucksters of hate because it plays to a popular anger and uncertainty. They're making millions doing this. They're peddling hate for their personal profit. Those are all the strategic races. It always fascinates me how people who already have so much seem interested in securing even more. And at such a steep cost. But you also mentioned that some people may see strategic racism simply as an opportunity to get ahead. What about those who aren't really necessarily rich, powerful, or even right-wing? When we look at the people actively promoting division, 
they are some of the most wealthy, most politically powerful, most media savvy figures in our society. It's an enormously powerful army of hate. That's one direction in which we have to look. But then we have to look at the defense, the rest of us, the Democratic Party, the universities, the labor unions, the foundations. And the sad truth is, for most of the last 60 years, the center and center left has been silent in the face of this racist onslaught. Or if you're looking at the Democratic Party, has sometimes actually joined with the racist onslaught itself. They've been silent because so many of these racist fears are playing on deeply embedded stereotypes that many liberals themselves share. Are black people a threat criminally? Would my children be safe going to an integrated public school? I've never been on welfare. What's the government ever done for me? Isn't that taking from my pocket? All of these sort of right-wing themes have found their resonance with the center and the center left, or, or much of it. And then also it's the case that a lot of the center and the center left has been trapped in understanding racism simply as individual animus or group dynamics and has not seen clearly that those pushing division are pushing division as a strategy for electoral or class warfare. So given all of this, where do we stand right now? And what can we do as a society to counter this or, or navigate it? So 50 years in, 60 years in, and, I, and I'm dating this to the sort of, let's say, the Nixon presidency. What do we have? Some of the most powerful, well-resourced, media-savvy factions of American society pushing racial hatred 24-7. And the great bulk of supposed opponents saying little or nothing. So that we're exactly in that situation where people use shorthand like democracy or democratic party or um, economic security. But they're not saying what's really at stake. They're not describing for people what we're really about because they don't even recognize it's what we're really about. At root, fundamentally, that Abraham Lincoln truth, a house divided cannot stand, that's us. That's where we are. And the powerful figures on the right know it. And so they divide our house to better take control of our government and our society and our economy. Whereas we in the center and the left, the sort of broad center and left, what have we done to unite our house, to create the sense of linked fate, to create the sense of commonality, of curiosity across difference, to, to actively promote cross-racial solidarity? For 50 years, we've done almost nothing. 
Thank you to my guest, Ian Haney-Lopez, professor at UC Berkeley School of Law, author of Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class, as well as Merge Left, Fusing Race and Class, Winning Elections and Saving America, and founder of the Race Class Narrative Project in the Race Class Academy, focused on countering dog whistle politics and building cross-racial and cross-class solidarity. Find out more at race-class-academy.com. This was part one of my interview with Ian Haney-Lopez. You can hear part two next week when we explore how engaging across our racial and class divides can help bring us together to care for and nurture our democracy. The strategy of dog whistling is to stampede people who are convinced they're not racist, that their deeply internalized racist fears are in fact not racist, but are instead common sense. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.